Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Michael Byrne is the COO at Nested Naturals, which is a Vancouver-based company that pioneers transparency in the health supplement industry. As an expert in e-commerce logistics, Michael's obsessed with logic, efficiency, and understanding the why behind human behavior. Michael sees time as our most valuable resource and therefore leads with efficiency. Time management, cost analysis, and productivity are his natural modes of thought. He uses these strategies and more to develop excellent training programs and manage multiple online platforms and manage inventory in a way that anticipates growth and leads to higher profit margins. Michael's found his true calling as the head of operations with Nested Naturals and is here today with the COO Alliance podcast, the Second in Command podcast, to share the keys to his success. Um, he's also a member of the COO Alliance. So, Michael, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Welcome right back to you. Why don't you give us a bit of your background? Tell us your story um, as to how you ended up where you are today. As you stated, I've always been very curious about the why behind behavior, um, how we function, uh, that led me into studying psychology. I did a psychology with a neuroscience focus. The more psychology I did, the more I realized the brain is behind a lot of the behavior. I knew I wanted to study that, but I took a couple months working with a, a health authority and worked with a, schizo- a group that focuses on schizophrenia. And that was eye-opening, what that work actually looks like. So it was definitely a lot more jarring than I think I was ready for. Mm. Um, so I ended up just hammering through my degree, finished in about three years, and then I started working as a neurofeedback technician. So I would scan people's brains, uh, mainly people with concussions or anxiety and depression, and just help them readjust their brain activity and move things forward that way. Wow. Uh, and I started running operations for that clinic. And both my parents have their MBAs as well. So my whole life growing up, dinner talk was about efficiency. You know, My mom taught business strategy, and my dad was a CEO himself. It's very deeply ingrained into who I am. So as soon as I started doing the operations, I all of a sudden had two people to go to immediately for help, for resources. And I just loved it. And I was able to get so much more done and help people way more efficiently and quickly because I was improving the business rather than just meeting them face-to-face and running the sessions. And that's when I found Nested Naturals, which is online. I mean, a dream job for me, you know, vacation, everything you can imagine. So focused on health and wellness, improving the society as a whole, not just one by one. And yeah, that's where I ended up switching to Nested. Based on that kind of history, you were really groomed, I guess, as a COO. And I was always felt I was groomed as an entrepreneur, but it sounds like you were almost groomed as a COO. I, I like to think so, at least. Yeah, yeah it's very fortunate. What was the big lesson that you might have pulled, I guess, from your dad's side, if your dad was a COO as well? Any lessons that you remember? I think a big thing um, that I remember him bringing up is that no, no matter what you're doing, because I played soccer competitively my whole life, if, if you're leading people, if you're mag- managing people, it's not about having control over them. It's about being responsible to them um, and always putting the people first rather than using management climbing in the business or what have you as a way to improve yourself it's more about improving those around you yeah it sounds like your dad was like a servant leader i i hope so yeah that's great now how about from your mom so your mom was a business school or business teacher or business professor what did you learn from her i think my mom taught me a lot about 
taking your time and being patient and always finding a solution. Uh, you don't need to find the first answer. The first answer is usually not the best answer. Take your time, be patient, especially when you're talking to other people. They may propose something, break that down, think about it, and find the better answer. Interesting. I like that she kind of takes her time and thinks through it all as well. Does that fit your natural style as well? I think my natural style is, is quite against that. I think I try and find everything and get everything done as quickly as possible. So it's really helpful for me to keep that in mind. Have you done your Colby profile yet? I haven't done my Colby. No, I've done a handful of other ones. We do uh, four different psychometrics here, but uh, we haven't done our Colby yet. No. I know for the COO Alliance, we'll be asking you to do your Colby A profile and also to have the CEO to do his or hers. It'd be really helpful to know what both of your Colby profiles are. It's interesting how the most entrepreneurs are very high quick starts. It's uh, almost like they execute and then they plan later. Yeah. Most COOs tend to ask a lot of questions before they start something or they'll put a system in place before they'll start. Yeah. Um, and that can often be where either the real strong zin or yin and yang comes in or where the real strong arguments come in. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. <laughs> yeah, the contrast. So how did you then make the jump from the, uh, I guess, the, the brain? And do you know the Amen Clinics, Daniel Amen? Do you ever study his uh, work? I've heard of them, yeah. yeah. Do you believe that the brain can be rewired at all? I'm curious. I know this isn't really a COO topic, but I'm just yeah. curious on the concept. Do you believe that we can rewire or reset the brain? A hundred percent. I'm not hundred percent convinced on fully resetting. We did work with people with brain damage all the way down to white matter. We helped the, their lives to get better. It didn't flip around like it does with something like concussion where, you know, there's this one woman, for example, who hit her head on the back of her trunk. She was just putting stuff into her van, hit her head on it. All of a sudden could only work three, four hours a day, sleeping 12, 14 hours a day, heavy depression. After about 10 sessions, she was right back to work full-time and doing a fantastic job. And that, that's the way that the system works. And if you do look at neuroscience, you look at how a neuron fires its functions, nutrients pump in and out of the cell when it fires. It's, it's yeah. survival of the fittest on a yeah. microscopic scale. You know, I yeah. truly believe that our brain is our own world. It's, it's a reflection of what we see both by input and output. Yeah, so the brain definitely can change itself. And if you can guide it, it's even better. So you moved from the clinics then over to Nested Naturals. Is that the, the first jump over? That was the first jump over, yeah. I was with the clinic for three years, and I've now been with Nested for three years as well. So I always find it interesting to see what systems are able to transfer from one company to another. So was there any system that you developed at the clinic that you're, you still use today then at Nested Naturals? The, the clinic was, was quite different. It was a very, very different setup, especially a lot of the marketing there was very you know, old school. And this is an e-commerce business, uh, mainly through Amazon as well. It's a completely different function from that standpoint. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if there's anything to transfer over, it's people, but that's always going to transfer. Right. Now, tell us about Nested Naturals and the core of what your business does. How does it kind of, don't advertise for us, but just walk yeah. through what you do so we can understand the perspective you'll come out with your ideas. So we got two owners, a CEO and CMO, and they both individually encountered some shady stuff in the, in the supplement industry that they really weren't happy about. And all of a sudden they realized, they looked into it, they really didn't have many people they could trust. Mm. So they just started selling their own products and developing it. They joined together and started selling their own supplements for uh, a completely transparent build. You can see everything that's on the bottle, that's in the capsule on the bottle. They wanted people to ask, be able to ask any question they want and they would find an answer for them. That was a big motivation behind Nested Naturals and what it came to be. And we're really trying to push that boundary for supplements. 
Interesting. Anything else that you've done specifically then that has kind of changed the way you're approaching the industry versus others? I mean, we're working on it. The, the big thing, so there's like certificates of analysis. That's one thing that we're trying to get out there. The problem is that it's very scientific. So we're trying to break it down, make it more legible. And we're working a lot on education, which you know, segues into that. Uh, just teaching people about what everything means. There's a lot of exaggerated information out there, and it's very difficult to find accurate sources as well. Our in-house nutritionist, she has her master's in biochemistry. She used to work in pharmaceuticals as well. I mean, she really knows her stuff. She's very thorough, and she loves to teach. She's been a teacher at the nutritionist school here for a while. So that's one thing we're pushing towards is actually just educating people. It's not about making sales. It's just teaching people about what's good and what's not. I've always been curious in, in your kind of business, and, and I've got a couple of former clients that I've coached that even sell on Amazon. How do you decide what SKUs to continue, what SKUs to kill off, what SKUs to really throw your weight behind? It's a very different, uh, difficult call. It's something we're actually taking a big focus on revisiting and improving again. But it's very difficult because Amazon is such an exaggerated scale. I mean, you see most things exist on an exponential scale, almost across the board. Even if you look at the number of words used in a novel, it functions on an exponential scale if you count the number. But Amazon's even more exaggerated. I mean, the top three products make significantly more than the next three and so on and so forth. If you're able to get up that climb, and that's usually what we do, we do some market research. We look at where we are across the market and where we sit and how much is it going to cost us to get up to that you know, four or five point level where we know we're just going to be able to coast and function independently. And if we're not able to do that within you know, a certain budget, depending on the product, we know we got to kill it. Oh, so and you will actively kill off products then. You won't just keep them in inventory and sell whatever you sell. You will actually kill some off. We'll try and sell what we can, but uh, we also don't want to sell something that's getting close to expiry or anything along those lines. So we, we monitor everything tight. What systems do you have in place to control your inventory? Like, I understand that, that in the retail space, and you are kind of a retail, even though Amazon is your store, but retailers, it's all about inventory controls and how fast you can turn over your cash and return on cash. What do you do to control your inventory to, so that you yeah. don't run out and so that you don't have too much both? Yeah, a lot of it is just inventory planning. I've got quite a few calculations out there, making sure we can calculate and anticipate growth, looking a lot of at a lot of history. So for example, we had one product that grew 25% quarter over quarter for a long time. So we just had to order 30, 35% extra every single time. So that way we could always anticipate what was to come. That's our first step. Our marketing has quite a thorough plan as well to make sure that we don't hit overstock. That's the biggest thing. But for quite a while, our biggest issue is actually stockouts, trying to avoid stockouts because and that had to do with terms and we, we've improved it all now. It, it was at the point where it was like, holy crap, we're not going to be able to afford our growth because right. we keep having to buy ahead of time because of all this growth. I mean, it, it got our cash a little tighter, but we adjusted our terms and improved everything. Now, is, it, is it people that are doing that? Is it systems that are doing that? Is it a combination of both? It's a combo. Yeah, we've got, we've got a few systems set in place for uh, at least for the marketing end, but a, a lot of it has just been negotiations and discussion. Interesting. Let me back up for a second. And I want to talk a little bit about vision or get you to talk about vision. Who's the CEO of your company? And how do you get yourself on the same page so that you're really clear on typically the vision is controlled by the CEO and then your implementation is controlled or integration is controlled by the COO. So how do you get the vision, I guess, out of their mind? And how do you make sure that you're on the same page as they are and in, in where you're going? Yeah, uh, the CEO is Jeremy Shirk. I mean, we've always gotten along very well. We've been able to read each other quite well. One thing that we did, we, he just redid his vision with the CMO. They wrote it out. They worked on it. Just last week, presented it to the team. 
before they did that, I wrote my own vision as well, updated it and said, okay, this is where I think operations is going to go. This is how I think it's going to work and sent it to them. And we just made sure everything aligned, got into, got it all into place. And that's something we're trying to encourage the whole team to do is everyone have their own vision and work on it that way. It's kind of like subvisions of the overall arch, overarching vision. Exactly. Yeah. It's like yeah. if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. You need to have some vision that then the CEO signs off on. And then when you put your plan in place, they can almost sign off on your plan as well, right? Exactly. Or you sign off on understanding their vision. They sign off on understanding your plan. Exactly. Yeah. And then we build it up. How many employees do you guys have now? And where do you kind of forecast yourself being over the next few years? Yeah, we're at a total of 18. Okay. Two years ago, there was six of us. When I, when I first started, there was one other higher than the two owners. So within the three years, we, we've gone up over four times. Do you outsource as well? Do you have freelancers that you use? Yeah, we've got a handful of freelancers as well. About six or seven. Okay. So in, in really in tripling the size of your company, or really quadrupling the size, if you add the seven into the 18 or 25, you've, you've, got, you've gone up by four. When you go from six to 24 people in a couple of years, the culture changes. So how have you th- seen things change and how have you tried to, you know, to build the company that you guys are building today? Yeah, I mean, the, the culture has changed a little bit, but it's one thing that we were very actively aware of. We actually hired someone as our director of people and culture as our eighth hire to make sure we didn't lose that gritty mindset, that adaptable mindset of being a small company that can do whatever we need, but while still growing into a bigger business. So that's something we've been actively working at for quite a while. But we did hit a few roadblocks along the way. That's just a learning process. A lot of the time it's been communication. Communication areas have have been a a big challenge for us. What kind of learning roadblocks or what kind of struggles have you had? I love learning from these. We had a fairly thorough hiring process before. There was the people that direct contacts, I would interview them. Then the owners would interview them. And then the whole team, well, not the whole team, but we'd do about four or five people just to see if they vibed well with the team, if there was that connection. Um, but we started to realize, okay, well, we can't just hire for personality. We do need to involve skill as well. We're just at that stage. We can't just hire someone that we get along with. For sure. We need to hire for skill as well. So that was one error that we made that slowed us down quite a bit. Yeah, it's pretty fundamental. I've, I've always said that in the old days, they used to say hire for attitude, train for skill. And I say that'll get you 7% growth. But if yeah. you really want to grow rapidly, it's more about hiring for attitude and proven skill set. And I, hire, I look for the culture fit first. And then from the much smaller pool of people that culturally vibe with us, then I find out if they have the skills to do the job. I think often we interview for the skills first and we end up with a person and we try to sell ourselves on why they'll be okay in the company. Yeah. Starting with people we know will be amazing and get the best skills out of them. Yeah. And I think because we are growing as quickly as we are, I mean, you're almost always behind on training. You're always having to hire ahead of time. So if you're having to train people for a long time, it really sets you back. You're in a pretty competitive job market, both for talent, you know, when you're competing against a lot of the technology companies that are in the downtown core of Vancouver and moving into the downtown core. Secondly, in just the cost of living, I mean, Vancouver is one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in. I used to say that, you know, if you didn't make a hundred grand, you're living on ramen noodle. And then a bunch of my employees said, you know, we don't make a hundred grand. I was like, oh my God, you're right. (laughs) In Vancouver, it's really, really tough. How do you find talent? How are you paying and remunerating your talent? What are you guys doing in those two areas? I guess once against the competition and two against just the cost in that marketplace. Yeah. And it is definitely very tough. We're doing everything we can to compensate people financially to what they need, but we do offer unlimited vacation. I mean, as long as you get your work done, that's all that matters. That's one thing that we do offer. We encourage people to take time off, especially if they're stressed. Uh, Mental health wellness days are another really big thing that we push for. 
at this time, I don't know if we're going to be giving everyone six-figure salaries. We'd love to get there at some point. Whereabouts in the in the market are you guys based? Where are you located? Uh, like geographically? Yeah. We're Seymour and Pender. Seymour and Pender. So you're right downtown. Yeah. Yeah, right by the Granville Station. There. Yeah, you're right. You're right in the heart of, um, like, you're right at Gastown. You're in the heart of the technology course. You, you're going to have to get to the pay level at some point as well, right? Because the perks. I always talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we have, kind of that yeah. triangle, and at the base is is food, shelter, and water. And um, Saxon, if you're not getting those things, you got to move to the next level. And yeah. I think in our companies, if we're not paying, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. Like the sick days, and they're like, I don't have time to stay at home for a sick day, or um, I, I don't have time. I don't, don't have money to go on a vacation. Like we need to make sure that we hit those levels. How do you recruit against other talent? What's your culture like? And, and how do you market yourself against other companies? Yeah. And that's a, a great question. I think one thing that we do try and push forward that separates us because I mean, you're right. There's Slack, there's Hootsuite. There's a lot of competitors out there that have things like, you know, like beer on tap, um, they got ping pong tables, they got game systems set up in their place. Uh, and this is connected to how we operate as a business, but one thing we really try and push forward is enjoyment versus pleasure. And one thing a lot of people, uh, a lot of our competition puts out are pleasure-based rewards. You know? So tell, yeah, tell me about that, the enjoyment versus pleasure, because I know that's something you're pretty big on. Yeah, pleasure is the, the simple things in life, basic stimulation, you know, watching TV, playing video games, drinking. Uh, it's fundamental. A monkey would enjoy it as well. Well, it's, that's where we get the dopamine then, right? Exactly. But it's a very immediate reward. It's not... It's not uh, the same as enjoyment, where enjoyment is more something along the lines of feeling accomplishment. It's getting something done. It, it's, it's about that sense of completion that gives that much more ecstatic feeling. It involves a lot more of your brain. And that's something we really, really try and push forward is and hire for are people that are seeking enjoyment. They want to find value and passion. They're not just looking to make a few bucks and then go watch TV at home. Do you interview and recruit for people that like to be a part of a group? Very much so. Yeah. Teamwork is one of our core values. It's something we definitely test for. It's part of why we have the group interview as well. How do they handle the group? And do you interview uh, one person by the group or do you interview multiple candidates at the same time? At that stage, it's one person by the group. Okay. Yeah, we want to see how they connect with other employees. Will the other employees actually like spending time with this person? Do they actually want to be around them? And vice versa. How do they connect? What's not worked for you guys in the interview process? Has anything kind of ever backfired or not worked out as well as it would have? To touch back on what I was saying before, we didn't spend enough time looking at skill and we almost went exclusively culture fit. And when you have so many people focused on and working in their passions and trying to get everything done as quickly as they possibly can, and you know as well as they can, it's hard to work with someone that isn't at that same skill set and that isn't there to support you to get through and push the whole team forward. So that was definitely, I think, an error we made in the past. So when you're, when you're bringing employees in, you've done the interview process and you're kind of taking them through group interviews and culture and skill-based interviews. How do you onboard people into your system and get them up and running quickly? The onboarding process. Again, the first thing is double-checking culture and making sure that they understand how we operate. One of the first things we get them in on is meeting rhythms. That's something we push forward very hard. It's something that you had an influence on there with the Meeting Suck book. Is that aspect of it? And there's also just don't call people into meetings if they don't need to be there. Like, don't waste people's time. Set meetings with expectations and intentions so people know what's going to come of it. And that was, that's one thing that we really push forward. It's something that we've struggled with in the past. 
where you got to make sure that the meetings are done effectively. That's a big, big, big first step for the onboarding process. And then after that, we look at building their skills. We set out a very thorough goal plan to make sure that they accomplish uh, as much as they can, follow the... Have you heard of the flow state? That's yeah. why... I was literally sitting with Stephen Kotler, who um, writes about the flow state, and uh, I was sitting with him two days ago. Yeah, so that's the fundamental basis of what we do for quarterly goals. We use that to try and build out you know, the hard struggle phase, and then the recovery, and then the zone, and then building out four different stages, look at the 10 different aspects of planning out our goals, do the full 90 days, six big steps, and then breaking those steps down into one thing every single day for you to get done. That's huge, by the way. And I think that's where, you know, you guys have flipped your org chart upside down that you have the CEO supporting you guys. And then, you know, you're supporting the team who are supporting the customers, that your job is to grow people, it's to grow their skills and to grow their confidence. And I think we often really miss on the goal setting component and the project planning and breaking down, breaking down the goals into projects and steps and helping people stay focused. And a lot of people would think that's micromanaging, but it's not at all. It's really helping people to focus on the critical few things versus the important many. Yeah, definitely. One thing that people underestimate is that most of the goal setting, we work with them to build it. It's giving them that autonomy to build it out. I mean, we give them guidance on what's best for the company, and they're usually involved in those decisions already. Giving them that autonomy and helping them build out the goal structure properly so that they can do what they love as best as they can. Yeah, I see when we're coaching people, it's really a balance of three things. It's direction, development, and support. So it's direction, making sure they're working on the right stuff at the right time. It's the development, which is skill development, if they're falling short, either through mentoring or coaching or, you know, even a third party helping them. And then it's the emotional support, both in their yeah. work, but also in their personal lives. Like at the end of the day, everyone is really struggling with something. Talk to me about that for a second. How do you support people? Or I'm curious if you do. How do you support your employees just in their personal lives and that people are struggling with stuff like people have got, you know, shit at home or stuff with their parents or a spouse or, you know, their, their mom's getting frustrated. They're not coming over for Thanksgiving. How do you deal with the fact their dog died? How do you help your employees get through those things? Yeah, I think our, our HR has a huge impact on that. The director of uh, people and culture, she's, she's very supportive on that. We do everything we can to get them there and make sure they have good health benefits. I mean, I'm definitely speaking with bias here, but we actually have a neurofeedback system in-house, like in the office here that we run on some of the staff. If they really want to, they can sign up. We've got to set a schedule and so on and so forth. What's the neurofeedback system? What do you do? What do you put them through? Uh, I mean, it's a very simple system. It's one of the systems I use at the clinic I worked for before. But yeah, like, there's an assessment process and then we get them going on sessions and I run them through it. It sounds more complicated than it is. It's just a long word. We have that for the team if they really want, um, if they're suffering with sleep issues or anxiety. I mean, we have all, obviously health supplements that help as well. Like Luna is a top seller on Amazon and it's a sleep aid. The staff can get that if they need it. We have greens. We actually get free supplements every quarter we get for the staff as well. Awesome. We'll have to get you to bring some of your products down for the CO Alliance too, so that we can test them all out. Yeah, not a problem. I used to coach a company called Viva Naturals. They're based out of Toronto and they sell a lot of supplements and stuff online. And I coached their team for about four years. Recently, I was talking to their, their CEO, Hussein, and I've talked to a couple other CEOs that sell exclusively on Amazon. It seems like Amazon is changing the rules a little bit right now. They're changing the rules regarding inventory, regarding pricing, regarding reviews, what you're allowed to market. So walk me through a couple of changes that came at you. I'd love to know if they kind of came out of thin air or if they were maybe to be expected. And then how did you get around them? 
because kind of that's what we have to do. We have to get around the rules. Like government puts a rule in place. You got to work around it versus yeah. you can't let the rules destroy your company. Uh, definitely. Yeah. And Amazon's very cutthroat. Yeah. They, I mean, it's been to our favor for the most part. For example, like, you know, going back to Luna, I got about 5,000 reviews wiped by Amazon in a day. They just cut them all. And we're like, holy crap, what happened? We looked, we contacted Amazon because uh, people do shitty business out there to get reviews. Reviews and, and selling is very directly correlated on Amazon. Right. Um, but because we do want to operate as a completely honest and transparent company, we're able to get those reviews back. So you've, you've been able to stay within the lines and it hasn't actually impacted you as much as somebody who is maybe playing outside of the lines and there were some risks. Yeah, the people that were playing outside of the lines got the biggest hit. I mean, it still affects us, right? Because they do a blanket and then they, uh, Amazon usually does a blanket hit and then they cycle back from there. We just have to make our argument and go from there. Talk about your clients. How do you, do you sell direct to consumer as well or just exclusively on Amazon? Uh, we do have our website as well, but um, Amazon's always been our biggest market. I, th- I think that's probably our biggest pain point right now is that well, we're doing so well on Amazon and it's growing so quickly it's difficult to get off Amazon. I mean, we don't want to be a single channel business. It's just asking for... But the heroin drip is too strong, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you're on that drip. You're getting the, the, the clients just coming in. You don't have to do any real marketing for it. Do you guys do a lot of marketing on Amazon? Like, do you do a lot of work around... You do it? Yeah, yeah. We've got a, we got a team of three specialized on Amazon for you know, keyword and marketing and ads. Do you know anybody, by the way, who does uh, Amazon marketing specializing in the book space? I've got... Only one of my books, I think, will really be worth focusing on. It's the book Meeting Suck, where people are buying, you know, 50 copies or 100 copies because they're buying it for every employee at their company to read. I'd love to get somebody to just get some stuff set up for me on Amazon related to that. Do you know anybody? Uh, I'm sure the CMO could help you here. I could get you connected. I'd love to. If you want to make an introduction, the fact that I'm in Vancouver, too, could meet with them. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'll do that for you. Obviously, it would be a very easy project to set up. Walk me through a little bit then with Amazon. What are you doing with Amazon? And you don't have to tell me if it's anything that's kind of trade secret, but what are you doing to convert people from Amazon customers over to a direct consumer where you can kind of pull back some of that revenue and you can cross market things that maybe aren't allowed to sell on Amazon, et cetera? The reason I bring it up, I was at at this conference, Baby Bathwater, the other day, and I was talking to someone who sells only on Amazon uh, hemp products. Oh, yeah. In his hemp products, he's marketing all of his THC and CBD products so that everybody comes from the Amazon hemp business back to his CBD and THC business offline, you know, direct to consumer off his own website. Yeah, definitely. And it is very difficult to do because Amazon has an extremely thorough and long list of rules of how everything has to stay on Amazon. It's Amazon's customer. We're just kind of there to pass the bottles along to the customer. I mean, yeah, I don't know how much I can go into this one for you. Uh, I'm sure there's a few trade secrets. But it's definitely not easy, especially when you're trying to play by the rules. There's, there's different ways around it that yeah. people work on, but we're trying to do everything to play by the rules. And it's, it's not easy. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of putting a sticker on the front cover of Meeting Suck that's like a call this 800 number. And when they call the 800 number, it explains why you should be buying hundreds of copies of it and either linking them to a direct sales page that is off Amazon or even back on. But technically, that, that, I mean, the phone number may be okay. But you definitely cannot have a sticker with a link on it, according to Amazon. Right. Okay. Um, that's not directed back to Amazon. Yeah, it'd be interesting if a free recorded number could cross-market your things, right? If there could be yeah. free offers. That would be something to test out and just play with. 
That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people do boxes as well um, because you can put whatever stuff you want inside the box. Okay. That was the other thing I was telling, I was telling my clients at Viva to put like, put a sticker on your product and put stickers in your boxes and put inserts and put like, yeah. you know, here's our brand, throw it on your laptop, but it's got the URL, like whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta find ways around it. I think there's, I think there's some, some huge opportunities there. If Amazon did not exist today, what would you, you know, let's, they're not going to go bankrupt, but what if they went bankrupt and you had to completely pivot? What would you do quickly and differently? Very quickly, we'd be working much more on customer acquisition. Uh, it's not really a thing with Amazon, right? You put your right. product up and you compete. So that, that would be the big focus. We'd probably have to hire someone with a lot of experience in that that could get us going on that immediately. That would be our first thing. For sure. Okay. Now, on the CEO-COO relationship, I've always said that you're really trying to drive towards that true yin and yang, you know, that real partnership between the two of you. What areas of the business does the CEO run today and what areas do you run today? He's doing a lot of um, getting out there, getting our name out there as a business, a lot of finance, getting in investments, getting out talks, uh, getting out and doing talks. Uh, that's what he spends a lot of his time on. He's also running the video, so he's doing a lot on uh, getting the education out there. It's something he's very, very passionate about is teaching people about health and wellness. And as far as the day-to-day operations, I mean, I'm making sure everything's running. We have what we say we have, that the products are being turned out. And then marketing, we have the CMO who's handling that. It's interesting that a lot of CEOs are very outward facing and they're doing a lot of the interviews and they're with the media. And I said, that's, yeah. that's actually why I started the Second in Command podcast was I wanted the rest of the story. And it's not that his story is not true, but there's a very different perspective to that same story. And I, I wanted to hear the story from the chief behind the chief. Talk about how do you get your relationship with Jeremy, the CEO? How do you guys work on strengthening your relationship and building uh, good communication? You know, what, what do you guys do? Are there any meeting rhythms you have or any yeah. tools you use to, to help you? I mean, we have Slack and we, have, like, we talk socially all the time. We got, you know, WhatsApp each other all the time. We see each other probably once a month where it's just not about work. We'll just go for dinner or for lunch or something. We'll just spend some time together. Every week we meet each other. It'll be oh, Mondays, 1.30 p.m. every single day. We meet, we chat, we check in on each other. How you That's doing? Huge. How's everything going? We actually went to Panama for a month last year as well. Just him and I. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. Like That's the kind of stuff that when you're doing that with a CEO, then your relationship's going to the next level for sure. Yeah. And we got that, like, you, you know, when you get that rhythm with someone where it's just like back and forth, you really don't even need to say much to cover the entire topic. Without throwing them completely under the bus. But, you know, there's obviously always something that's going to drive us a little bit crazy about our partner, either in personal life or business. So what's one thing that drives you crazy about your CEO, Jeremy? And then how do you work around that or with that? So Jeremy, I think, I think he's got a bit of a, a, the head down syndrome. Like when he sees something, he goes all out for it. And I admire that so much because he doesn't back down. He works and works and works and works. And you don't always get that from a CEO or owner that is willing to just drive themselves so hard towards a goal. I admire that, but, but so sometimes that's towards a wall. And so a lot of it is just taking the time, looking at communication, as you said, like I was saying we had those four different psychometrics. One thing I did was just essentially create a Venn diagram on where we overlay and where we're different. And I just try and keep that in mind. Like, okay, this is something that's going to require more thorough communication. I just double check that, see what would be a better way to communicate with them on it and try and coach it over. And one thing I've learned is sometimes it takes more than one try. You just got to 
try a few different methods and keep chatting and keep the open discussion going. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? All of these yeah. grandmother sayings are so true, right? I don't think there's a single grandmotherism that isn't absolutely true. Yeah. One thing I know about you is you don't like uh, letting irritations turn into bigger problems. So walk us through kind of your mindset with that and maybe tell us about a specific example of when you, you had an irritation and you short-circuited it. It might take me a few seconds to come up with a specific example, but that's something that's always bugged me. Now, it probably didn't make me very popular in high school is that I didn't like drama and that I, I just wanted to solve any issue immediately. If you have a problem with someone, go up and talk to them right away and solve it. Don't let it become an actual underlying issue on how you communicate with someone. And I think a big thing is losing trust too. If you can't trust another person, especially on your team, you've let something go too far. That sure. problem needed sure. to be addressed. I mean, it's hard to think because uh, there's always a million little irritations, you know, that I always try and tackle right away. Let's talk about something else then. How about praise? Do you, I think a lot often as leaders, we're very driven. We're very go, 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 go. And I think people are starving for praise. They're starving yeah. for that human connection. And they'll often receive the negative feedback or the constructive criticism much better if they're getting some praise along the way. You know, there's that term, the shit sandwich, that you give them something good, you tell them the yeah. constructive criticism, you give them something good. Do you focus on praising people and do you have any systems in place to help with that? This is probably going to be a longer answer than you anticipate on this. So one of our values is positive vibes and as well as teamwork, just health psychology, which I won't get into on this bit. What we try and focus on is the operant conditioning model. And if you look at improving behavior, providing something positive for a good behavior or a behavior you want to increase is far more effective than punishing a bad behavior. Yep. So trying to stop a bad behavior by saying no isn't helpful. And the rule that I, I usually give to people, the general concept is if I was saying, giving you directions on how to get my, to my house, and I said, don't turn right, do not turn right. You have no idea how to get to my house, right? Like that, that's not providing any information. It's just saying what not to do. Yep, and yep. providing something to do is always significantly better to increase behavior. And we've actually have part of one of our meeting rhythms on Fridays which I'm very thankful for is, is something we call a kudos session where we stop and we just give praise to each other face to face. The whole team sits down and it's an opportunity to recognize each other on the great things that we've done during that week. And it forces me to reflect. I'm very forward thinking for the most, most part. So having that time to stop and think like, okay, what did my team do for me this week? That was fantastic. That's huge. They seem so little, but they're actually really massive. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those small little things that have a huge impact. Yeah. I know when I was, I used to coach a company years ago called Nurse Next Door, started coaching them before they started franchising and taught them a lot about culture and PR and their systems on meetings. They put in place the daily huddle in the morning at around 10.55 and they would run an all company seven minute daily huddle. And then in the afternoon, they put in place um, a system around praise. And I can't remember, they, they had a Japanese term for it, it might've been Kaizen, but there was this, this thing around praise where they were coming in and praising all the employees on stuff. And it was really powerful to have those two very fast, you know, one was seven minutes, one yeah. was five minute meetings. And people thought, oh, it's such a distraction to have your people come and do it. But man, the energy they leave from is, is so powerful. It bursts them into the afternoon. Yeah. And you know, it's something that we do as well in the morning, which is super helpful. And it gives us the ability to practice gratitude is we actually do a meditation together before we do the daily huddle. Uh, we spend 10 minutes, meditate together, and then we go into the huddle and talk about what we're doing that day. Interesting. One of our members of the COO Alliance, they run a company called Dry Farm Wines, and they have all of their employees meditate together for an hour a day. Yeah, I heard that he did a podcast recently, right? Yeah, Mark, and um, pretty cool. And his his CEO, Todd, and I were talking together at at this event, uh, Baby Bathwater. We were up at the top of this mountain chatting the other night. And 
I was asking about the meditation and where it came from. I guess he'd had a pretty severe accident and it helped him get through the accident. Uh, and then it just carried on to his life. And then when he hired his first employee, they saw him doing it. And they kind of joined in and it just kind of went from there. And the, the neuroscience behind meditation is incredible. Super, super fascinating research. It's a start, what started neurofeedback as well, actually. Now, what, um, kind of med- what kind of meditation do you do? Is it, is it a guided meditation or is it TM or, or is it? We vary it up. We do usually guided meditation Mondays and Fridays. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're doing just some sort of nature sound where it's uh, you know, more self-guided. That's awesome. Uh, Michael, any tips that you want to give a, an emerging second-in-command or an emerging leader? Any, any lessons that you've learned that you wish you'd known earlier on in your career? I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was taking the time to plan out. So it's called autotelic goals, self-driven goals, goals that are motivating within themselves. And it took me a long time to actually build those out. Like I kind of always knew what I liked. I knew what I was passionate about, but I didn't fully take the time to actually plan it out and look at what it means. And, you know, going back to that flow model we use, but don't only do it for yourself. You got to do it for your team. If your team loves what they're doing and they're there because they want to be, it just happens to be where they work as well. It makes such a difference for the whole team and for the business. Hey, you've got to you got to dive into that a bit more. You can't you can't kind of tease us with autotelic goals and think we're going to f- even follow you. So, what okay. what's that mean? Give us kind of the who, what, when, where, why, and how of autotelic goals. Then, yeah, autotelic means self goal. So it's a goal that is something that you want to do because you like to. Okay. It's not a goal because you want to get two million in sales this quarter. It's a goal because it's something that you love to do and it's what you're going to work on. Okay, and it's kind of a fundamental breakdown of what your passion is. Look at what you really love doing and then break that into essentially tasks. What aspect of this do I love? If you love playing, uh, I'll just use sports because it's simple. If you love playing hockey, okay, well, do you like to score? Do you like to pass? Or do you like to defend? What, what, what aspect are you truly passionate about? And then break that down on how you can improve that. And then you've you got to go back to the flow model, which is going to take me a long, long time to explain. That there's a book out there called Flow by I'm not even going to attempt his name, but the first name is Mahali uh, that I would suggest checking out. He breaks it all down for you. You can see in great detail what it all entails, but breaking things down in that method. And the the general rule, if you don't want to read the whole book, is it's always 4% harder than what you think you can do. Because then it's not going to give you anxiety. It's not going to be too much that you can't do it, but it's also not too little that it's not going to be challenging enough. You need to be so focused. You know, think of Michael Jordan with his tongue out, where He's not self-conscious at all during that time frame. And that's one of the rules. You can't be self-conscious. You can't be aware of your own body. You can't be aware of time. So whenever I'm trying to truly focus in, I actually hide the clocks for myself. So that way I can truly focus in. Yeah, there, there's a series of, of t- tips out there in the book. I love that. Well, it's, a, it's a good one to leave us with as well. We'll link, um, we'll link to the book flow in the show notes as well. Michael Byrne, the COO for Nested Naturals. Thanks for sharing with us today. Appreciate it. Say hi to your CEO for me as well. And we'll see you at one of our our next CEO Alliance events as well. All right. Thanks so much, Cameron. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for all the time. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.